Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Uh, today was apparently Bring Your Own Podium Day, and I totally forgot. So I'm going to borrow yours, Aaron, and we'll get it back to you in a minute. All right. Um, good morning. I'm Eric. I'm one of the elders here, and on rare emergency occasions, they ask me to preach. So that's today. So welcome. I'm glad you're with us, whether you're in person or online. Uh, this, we've been in a, ser- a sermon series called, uh, in Colossians called Life is the Church, and we're going to continue that today. Uh, just keep rolling right along. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll dig in here. So if you, uh, in whatever medium you're using, if you want to turn to Colossians, we'll be in, at the end of chapter 1, starting in verse 24, uh, whether you're on an app or in a paper Bible, and we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 5. So let me do that for us. And we'll dig into some, some good context here. Okay, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may, be, may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let, let's pray, uh, and we'll continue on. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, that you've preserved it throughout time and history so that we can continue to see how you are revealed, how you have revealed yourself to your people, and how that we can be a part of that. Uh, God, I pray that you would use it today, that you would speak your wisdom to our hearts, turn our hearts towards you and our affections to you to help us to love you more. Uh, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so I don't preach very often, and I don't think I've ever th- given thought to put a title to a sermon that I've, that I've written or come up with, but I had a couple of possibilities this week. Uh, titles such as this, The Mystery of God is Revealed to the Colossians, and You Won't Believe What It Is. Or Riches and Glory Made Known, Here's How You Can Participate. Or perhaps a little bit closer to the mark, I read Colossians at 0.25 speed, and you won't believe what I found. So the the reason for these clickbaity titles we'll talk about here in a little bit. 
But uh, today in Paul's passage, Paul talks a lot about this mystery of God, drawing in his readers, and he spends time unpacking what that is. And so our hope, my hope for us today, is to understand that Christ is the center of this mystery of God, and he is our source of hope. So where are we in Colossians? I thought of this, uh, this is kind of what I've been ruminating on as we've gone through Colossians. I love the book of Colossians, this letter to the people. There are so many uh, beautiful passages and ideas in it uh, that it reminds me of a uh, place I've been. So at my day job, I periodically have to travel to uh, a specific area of the desert that may or may not have n- a number assigned to it. Um, occasionally, I have a day off or a couple of days off in a row Uh, And I've had the ability to visit uh, Lake Tahoe, which is just outside of Reno, Nevada. So I don't know if you've ever been there, but it is a fantastically beautiful place in the middle of nothing, in the middle of the desert. Um, The surrounding area is like any place else in the western U.S. desert. It's sandy, flatlands with scrubs and rocks and boulders. And then the occasional desert hill or mountain, you know, not a mountain that you think of with snow on it, but it just kind of rises up out of the ground, kind of like southern California. Not a whole lot to see. Uh, But right outside of Reno is this place called Lake Tahoe. And so the first time I went, I had a couple of days, and so I went and drove out there. uh, And you can drive up the mountains and cross into this mountainous region. Uh, The first time I did it, I was in complete awe. You're driving up the road, and I was craning my neck to look out the windshield and look around. There's all, as I'm driving up the switchback, there's all these cars behind me because I'm the tourist that's like looking at everything and these people are just trying to get where they want to go. Um, but once you, you cross over a peak called Mount Rose uh, and enter into a ring of mountains uh, that surrounds this beautiful, beautiful lake, It's a deep blue color. Uh, There's boulders and tall pines that reach all the way up to the peaks of these mountains, uh, which are mostly snow-covered most of the year, uh, and they go all the way down to to the banks of the lake. Um, The eastern side of Lake Tahoe has been set aside as a state park, and there are many, many places that you can just pull over your car and get out of your car and go for a hike, and it's beautiful. It was pretty ridiculous the first day that I did it because I was like, I'm going to find the perfect place to go for a hike. And I pulled over and walked down, found this trail, went to the beach, beautiful spot. I was like, cool, I'm going to find another place. And I stopped four or five times, and every time it's the same, like, picturesque beauty all the way down to the lake, and you can put your feet in the lake, uh, which is pretty cold. But just a beautiful place to explore. Uh, When there's snow on the ground, all kinds of places you can stop and go sledding. Uh, Just huge hills, uh, meadows, and all kinds of things there. You could spend days and days exploring the area, and that doesn't even count the ski slopes uh, that are at the top of the mountain. I say all that to say, because for me, approaching and arriving at this point in Colossians is like a trip into those mountains of Lake Tahoe. We drive up the path of the introduction here in Colossians, we arrive at what I really think is the peak of beauty, which is that passage of Colossians 1, 15 through 20 that we spent weeks on, only to see that we've arrived in this beautiful, that we're surrounded by these beautiful elements of Scripture that are begging to be explored and savored. And we can spend days and days, and we will spend days and days in Colossians looking at these things. So what's going on in Colossians? What's the context of what we're talking about today? Paul is in prison writing to the people of Colossae and a few other towns in the, in the nearby valley to encourage them. They've received Jesus. They've been instructed by a man named Epaphras, 
who likely received uh, this, the word of God from Paul and was converted and then went back to his own hometown uh, to, speak, to speak the word of Jesus there. Apparently, Epaphras has come to Paul with a concern about his local church that there are some false teachers present. So we don't know a lot of detail about exactly what the substance of the false teaching was, but it was some form of what we've been calling Jesus Plus. People that acknowledge Jesus have been saying, there's a little bit more that you should seek after besides Jesus. So the Colossians have accepted Jesus as Lord, but we're now being tempted to move on to higher things, to special knowledge reserved only for the elite believer, or mystical religious elements and practices involving angels and other things. So Paul writes a letter. Paul opens his letter with thanksgiving for the work of God that has begun in Colossae and offers a prayer for their continued growth in all spiritual wisdom and understanding for the purpose of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing, good fruit, bearing fruit in every good work, as he says in verses 9 and 10. And then we get to verses 15 and 20, or, which is a hymn or a poem on the preeminence of Christ, as it's probably labeled in your Bible. I kind of think of this as the mountain of Christology. There's so much to unpack here, and, and Trey and Joel Keane uh, spent time unpacking this over several weeks, looking at all of, all of what Paul is saying in this densely packed piece, and he is essentially making much of Jesus. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes Bible publishers do us a disservice by condensing pieces of poetry like this into just a, a paragraph format, because... Um, I think it really takes away from the ability to read it as a poem, as it's written, and, and focus on the lines and see what's written there. But it's packed with truth, the truth about Jesus as God, that Jesus was present at creation and participated in it, that he's fully God and fully man, that Jesus is the Word or the Logos, that Jesus is the Reconciler, he's the Messiah and the Redeemer. All of that is packed into five small verses there. The poem or hymn is a strong reminder to both the Colossians and to us of the foundation of our faith, which is Jesus. And after that mountain peak, Jeremy Jacobs brought us down into the beautiful meadow and walked us through the implications of who we now are given what Jesus has done for us and the assurances that we have. So then we get to our passage today where Paul makes a little bit of a transition Paul talks about his, his apostolic call, that means his call to be an apostle, and about his ministry in general, and then gets down to, starts to turn and look at some specific instructions for the Colossians. So on first reading of this passage, Paul, who in his own words says he strives to be all things to all people, seems to be playing right into the interests of the Colossians. They've been enticed by these false teachers who are peddling secret knowledge and mystery rituals and, uh, of angels or other, other things that will bring true believers closer to God. So Paul, in his wisdom, seems to hook right into this language of the teachers, enticing his readers and drawing them into his secret. He says things like this in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Is this guy crazy? Who rejoices in their sufferings? But then he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Aha! I knew there was more to it. We're about to find out. In verse 25 he says, I'm going to make the word of God fully known. 
He says, oh, excellent, I'm ready, bring it on. Verse 26, he says, it's the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. We're about to learn the secret. I'm so ready. In verse 27, he says, how great are the riches of the glory of this mystery. I love the sound of that. Riches and glory, bring it on. Paul himself, it seems like, is layering on these clickbait titles, trying to get you to watch his videos and join his stream, to subscribe to his stream. He's actually moving from general to specific with regard to his message of who Christ is. That Christ is the one who's at the center of God's mystery. So this morning, we're just going to spend time walking through this passage and breaking it down. And I've got a couple of quick closing things at the end, and then we can get out of here and move furniture. Uh, so that's, what, that's the plan for today, is just to walk through these and pull out things to see how God is speaking not only to the Colossians, but to the church in general. So let's walk through and see the fullness of what Paul is actually saying in his message to the Colossians and to us. So starting in verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So right away we see that Paul still considers himself to be suffering. He says the hardships in which Paul endures in the course of his apostolic service, so being an apostle of God, are endured, why? For, other, for the sake of other people. He says he can rejoice in them because of the advantage that it gives to these new converts. He is suffering so that they don't have to. This is like we talk about Jesus doing suffering on our behalf so that we don't have to. A very poor example of this I think of is as a parent, there are things that I do to build a life for my children so that they don't have to suffer the things that I did. I love hearing stories about the first child in a family of multiple generations that's been able to go to college where the parents before them worked and saved and sent them to college, something that they never thought would be possible. Those kinds of things. Uh, that's kind of a, a small taste of, of a practical thing I have in my brain about suffering on behalf of someone else in order to that the other person may benefit. By bearing hardships on behalf of the people of Christ, Paul says he was entering into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, which he also talks about in Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes this to a different church. He says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort also. Sharing in the sufferings enabled him to sympathize with the fellow believers in their own sufferings, even though he had actually never met them. And he can also share in their comfort. By suffering with them, he might reduce their suffering just as Jesus has done for us. For followers of Jesus, the suffering we bear is temporary until Jesus restores all things and removes suffering altogether. Interestingly here in this passage, Paul does not prescribe this to the Colossians, calling them to suffer for Jesus' sake or for the sake of one another. Uh, rather, in this particular passage, he's just introducing his role and the call that's been placed on him. He does talk about bearing one another's burdens elsewhere in the New Testament. All of these things, in all of these things, Paul is suffering on behalf uh, 
of other people in order to make the word of God fully known. Why is he willing to endure this suffering? Especially for people that he's never met. Let's read on. Verse 25. Paul says he has been called to freely proclaim the word of God to the Gentiles. And then in verse 26, he says, this is a mystery. Now, a mystery is something that's been concealed. And he says, it's now been revealed. This mystery of God revealing himself has been foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament scripture, but is now fully revealed. It is made known to whom? Paul says, it's made known to the saints. That's in verse 26. Now revealed to the saints. But who are the saints? The saints in this context, in chapter 1, he says, this entire letter is to the entire church at Colossae, which is the saints. It's not written to the angels. It's not limited to a set of elite believers. It's not written only to a specific church. Only, it's not, this mystery is not given only to a specific church, like Jerusalem, but it's to regular, regular believers everywhere. This mystery made known. Verse 27. Paul himself did not instantly grasp the full revelation of this, rev- of this mystery that was revealed to him on his, dis- on his Damascus Road experience. So if you, if you remember, if you remember the story of Paul, he was at one time a persecutor of the church of Jesus. And Jesus encountered him on a, on a, on a journey and powerfully revealed himself and said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Meaning, why are you persecuting my body? That is the church. And Paul is stunned. And Jesus calls him and and converts his heart. And then, Paul goes away and spends time studying and has to reframe his entire understanding of who God is in the Old Testament and what he has done in the light of this revealed Jesus. Paul had to work this out over time. He was off the scene for years, as we see, at least in the timeline that we understand, sorting out the story of God before, he again, before God calls him again to turn and preach this word to his people. Paul is not the owner of this mystery. In fact, Epaphras was the messenger that originally brought the good news to the Colossians. But we do see that the saving purpose of God was a known theme in the Old Testament. We here today, benefit from reading that uh, as one unified story that leads to Jesus for my Gospel Project people. Um, We have a huge benefit of seeing that and not having to live in the moment to see what God is doing. And the inclusion of the Gentiles in in this saving mystery is also foreshadowed, although the Jewish people often forgot that this, that they were built to be a blessed, they were blessed to be a blessing to the rest of the world and that others would be included in this too. But exactly what would this mystery look like? They didn't know until right now. The incorporation of both the Jews and the Gentiles together in the common body of Christ, the common life of the body of Christ, that is what was now being made known. It's a beautiful mystery that God has poured out his grace lavishly on all who believe. He's graciously purposed to make himself known and make this mystery known even among the Gentiles, which is us, 
Most of us, I would venture to say probably none of us, are ethnically Jewish to be included in this called out people of God. And yet, God has made known this mystery to us. Together, then we get to be a part of this mystery. At the center of which is revealed, like a Christmas surprise, Christ in you. All of the clickbaity titles that you had to click on to get through here, the answer was Christ in you. What does that mean? After Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to live within us, never to leave us. In John chapter 14, he, says, he tells the disciples this is going to happen. And he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then we see this happen where the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. God sends his Spirit and moves in his people in a mighty way. And not just for individual people, but for the good of the church. He gathers them together. This is a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, we see God would send his Spirit on specific people's specific people for specific times and specific purposes. So God would send his spirit to empower a prophet to speak the word of truth to uh, individuals or kingdoms or to his people, but it wasn't a permanent indwelling until we get to the New Testament. And now, again, a foreshadowing of the God who is pouring out his spirit on us. Christ in you, both the individual, that's me and that's you, and communal, that's us. Christ in you, both Jews and Gentiles. This is the content of the mystery that Paul speaks about. Christ in you, Colossians, the hope of glory. And it's also good news for us. Christ in you, refuge, the hope of glory. Now, despite all of the language here about mysteries and revelation, Paul is very, very, very clear. And if you didn't get that from verses 15 through 20, he keeps saying it again. Jesus is it. In verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This Christ whose life is given for and to all of his people. He's the one. He is it. Christ is the sum and the substance of Paul's message. He, Jesus, is the fulfillment of all that God has been planning and working since the very beginning. Christ is the center of God's mystery and our hope of glory. The emphasis here on verse 28, it, Paul talks about, is not only on the saving message of redemption, of Christ for us, but also on the daily teaching that grows faithfulness in the people of God. The exploration of this divine wisdom of Christ to which, into which they have entered is the task of a lifetime. Now, uh, it's taken me a long time, and I'm still not very good at it, but reading scripture and trying to understand themes and what's going on in it. One of the techniques you can use when you read scripture is to look for 
repeated words to say, okay, the author is repeating the same phrase or words here. That's pointing to something. What could it be? If you ha- hopefully you noticed in verse, 21, in tw- yeah, verse 28, Paul uses the word everyone three times. He said, I'm warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There is no part of the teaching of God, of Jesus, that is secret or reserved for a spiritual elite. This is the point of what Paul is trying to say to these people. He's not yet to the point in the letter where he's, he's uh, talking to the specific things that they're facing. He's very, at the very beginning here, setting up Christ is preeminent, Christ is the center, Christ is what we seek. Turn your eyes towards him. There's no part of the teaching that's for somebody else, that's for only a few people. The original, the everyone that's translated there says all man, the original translation. Um, the gospel is for each Christian individually, not just mankind in general. It's not just a, ah, Christ is good for, the people, for all people in general. No, Christ is for us. He's for me. This mystery is for me. Paul's fighting against the fake teachers who proclaim a higher wisdom after entering the faith, luring them into mysterious practices and angel worship and various other things. But Paul says, no, I want to fight against these Jesus plus teachers who promote these man-made rules and anything else that would draw us away and not produce true faithfulness. Paul says, no, the gospel of Jesus is for all to present each believer as mature. We can receive that. So what does it mean for this to be to all people? If you're a kid, the gospel is for you. Even if you're one of those kids with stinky feet who refuses to take a shower, the gospel is for you. Learning about the creation of God who made all things. If you're a student, understanding how the world works, the gospel is for you. As you see how the God who reconciles all things has created things to work, and you begin to see some of these things are broken. Why is, why are, why is life this way? For those who are young adults, beginning careers, getting through college, studies, uh, getting through studies, the gospel is for you to be able to see how you, God has called you par- to participate in the reconciliation and restoration of this world. That he's done that for you and he's called you to enter into it. For parents, the gospel is for you to understand how God, uh, <laughs> in your desperation and exhaustion of how will we possibly ever make it and bring these children uh, into adulthood, the gospel is for you. Understanding that God is the one who provides. God is the one who will care for his people ultimately. And God will provide direction and opportunities for them. For those who are mature in the faith, God is for you. The gospel is for you. It is something that we can continue to mine and understand the beauty of all that Christ has done and the implications as we seek to serve and love and teach It's for everyone. 
The goal is to present everyone perfect in Christ. That sounds lofty. How does that happen? This is the long view. Paul taking the long view. That at his second coming, the work of grace will be complete in the, in the people of God. And there will be no more suffering. And we will be perfected as we've been conformed to the image of Jesus. And Paul says, it's worth it to work for this. He says in verse 29, for this I toil. And where does Paul get all of the energy that he's expending on this ministry, toiling for the people of God? He says it's from divine power. As Paul strives energetically, God continues to work within him to make this mystery of God fully known. Christ is the center of God's mystery, and he is our hope of glory. Paul then, after the end of chapter 1, he's talking about his ministry in general, that he's called as an apostle to make this word known. And then he begins to address, uh, starting in chapter 2, where we've marked chapter 2, to address the Colossians specifically, directly. In verse 1, he says, I toil and suffer not for those he has met, but for those who've been converted through others, which is, as we mentioned, is Epaphras in this case. The conflict, as we mentioned before, is against the false teaching to which these churches are being exposed, some outside folks. So Paul offers a prayer here in verse 2 to be strengthened and encouraged and bound together in love. Interestingly, I thought this was interesting as I, as I, as I read through this in Colossians in general. The word here is encouraged. He is not attempting to comfort them because they're not suffering under heavy affliction. He's attempting to strengthen them and instruct them. His concern then is that they would be led astray by heretical teachers who would say that Jesus is not enough. You need something else, just a little bit more. You need to pursue this spiritual experience. You need to pursue this hidden knowledge that only I have and I will help show it to you. Then you will be truly faithful. The solution here that Paul proposes for them and for us is to reach the riches of the fullness of understanding of Jesus together. The false teachers here are proposing that this knowledge itself is the end goal. But Paul says it cannot be known apart from love within the community. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes to the church in a separate occasion where the Corinthian church was struggling with all manner of things that he writes to them and says, hey, you're pursuing a lot of things that could be good, but you're making them ultimate things, one of which in this particular case was knowledge. And Paul writes and says, this knowledge that you're pursuing for the sake of knowledge is inflating you. It's only for your own ego. But love together is something that builds up. Paul is not saying to not pursue knowledge. He's not saying, remain in ignorance about the mystery of Christ and just trust me. He is saying, the gospel is for all of us. Christ is the center of this mystery, and he is for all of us to pursue together. To reach all of the riches of the fullness, of the full assurance of understanding, and the, myst- and the knowledge of God's mystery. He's also very wordy. Okay, 
This mystery, again, is not something additional or extra, but the mystery is Christ himself, the mystery of God as revealed in Jesus. And he is our hope. Love as they have seen from God, the sacrificial love that Jesus portrays in giving himself up not only for his own people, but for the Gentiles is what binds them together. And together they would attain to full knowledge, which is deeper understanding of this divine mystery, which is Christ. I love how he keeps putting that in at the end. He's like, when he's using those words, the divine mystery, which is Christ, don't forget. I'm going to keep saying it because I don't want you to forget that I'm not talking about something else. This knowledge of the mystery of Christ, the knowledge of Christ himself is personal. The Colossians, he says back in verse 27, have become one with Christ. You can spend a lot of time thinking about and understanding what does that mean, to be one with Christ. They can't fully appreciate or understand the divine wisdom without a personal knowledge of Christ. There has to be a trust in who, God, in who Christ is and what he has done for us before you can hope to understand the fullness of this Jesus. In verse 3, it says, In Christ all of the divine treasure of, divi- all the treasure of divine wisdom and knowledge are stored up. Christ is the wisdom of God, true knowledge, And we are called to pursue him. It's not worth seeking elsewhere because you won't find it. When he says the phrase hidden in Christ, he means it's not hidden somewhere else. It's not in following rules or regulations or food restrictions or other other restrictions known as asceticism, things that you're torturing yourself in order to gain a higher state It's not in following angel worship or rituals or seeking after mystery religions or experiences, wanting to have a spiritual experience, but in Christ himself, a personal and deep understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. Why pursue, as the people of God, why pursue this wisdom and knowledge? Paul finally points to the danger that's facing the church. Paul says, I say this, that in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He says, I say this, all of the things that I just said about the preeminence of Christ, about the mystery of God, about Christ being at the center of the mystery of God, and about him being your hope, all of that I just said, so that you will not be persuaded by other arguments. When he says plausible arguments here, the original uh, words here have a negative connotation. It's not just arguments that sound reasonable. They're plausible but false arguments. And we're going to hear more in the coming weeks about some of the things that, uh, against which Paul is preaching. But he starts here. Instead of coming out of the gate to say, hey, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong, he says, first let's start with this is right. This is the center. This is the thing that we cling to which is Jesus. Paul finally closes out in verse 5 and says, I prefer to be there in person to help you deal with the issues, but instead I'm with you in in spirit. Now, for those who like to look for the sovereignty of God, as a little side note, 
Paul is in prison here, and he wishes that he can be them, be with them, so that he can speak to them and articulate with passion that this exact same message of who Christ is. But in the sovereignty of God, he can't be there. So he has to write a letter, which now thousands of people and generations upon generations can be encouraged with. I think that's pretty, pretty amazing to think about uh, Paul not only suffering on behalf of his people, but God using that to bring his word and his mystery not only to the Colossians in one point in time, but to his church in all points in time and to refuge church. Paul also closes with this, that he says, I'm, he praises them for their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. The praise suggests that although they were troubled by false teachers, that the church was basically sound in the faith. This is unlike uh, a lot of the other churches that Paul writes to, uh, specifically the Galatians, where he comes right out of the gate and says, you foolish Galatians, and you know that somebody's about to get their booty whooped. But here he doesn't do that. He says, the good, you have received the good news. Christ is the center of this mystery. Pursue him, and these other things will be pushed away. I think about refuge in the same way. That we're not facing extreme persecution. We're free to meet here on Sundays or any other day of the week. We're free to gather together. We're free to, to read from God's word, to speak to one another. We're not suffering deeply. There's not a famine in our land. We're out, there is a general low level, I'll say low level of suffering and brokenness in the world that we all experience. But there's not a big thing or multiple things that are attacking us like we see in many of these churches. So in that way, I think we are similar to the Colossians. And I love to see the faithfulness of the people of refuge as we seek to pursue Christ together and set aside secondary things. So what can we take from this passage in closing? What else? We've, we must understand that Christ is the one who's at the center of God's mystery and our hope of glory. I've probably said that 128 times, and I don't know what else to say because that's what Paul says to these people. He says this is the most important thing before we get to anything else, before we get to church structure and anything else and the way that you worship, this is the center. So how do we pursue Jesus as the wisdom of God? Christ is at the center of this mystery. So... We seek Christ, who's the source of this wisdom. We explore the depths of the work that he's accomplished. We talk about disciplines and practices and things that we can do all the time. And all of those are for the purpose of understanding who Christ is and what God is doing all the more. It's not to attain a secret knowledge that you only get if you read all the way book through the book of Leviticus. That's not the point. The point is, to be enmeshed and engrossed in this story, to see how God is slowly working over time in his people and fully reveals himself in Christ to his people. I'll give a plug for this. Over the summer months, we typically talk th about practicing the communal disciplines or communal practices, which are things that we can do together or what we call to one another in order to help build up the body, one of which is 
to teach one another. So I'd encourage you, after today, throughout the summer, tell someone what you were learning about Jesus. I'm not saying tell someone about Jesus as in have the five-step plan and be able to present it to a stranger on the street. That's not what I mean. What I mean is as you learn about who Jesus is and what he has done for you and in you, to share that with somebody else here. As you learn about the story of God that points to Jesus, Something interesting, fascinating about this God who is in his infinite wisdom did this thing here and then it's fulfilled here and about how that's amazing and beautiful. Share that with someone. Or as you learn about yourself, as you see God working in you, softening a heart of stone, turning a heart away from selfish desires to care for other people. Share that with someone. Teach someone so that we may attain to the full riches of this, of this knowledge and wisdom together. And a final reminder that not only is Christ the center of this mystery, but Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Remember that this is who you now are. Your dead and darkened spirits have been raised to life. Christ in you, refuge, the hope of glory. Now the word hope, uh, I think we, we've often misunderstood it in our, or misused it, uh, thinking that, well, I hope that my team wins this, or I hope that this ha- thing happens. But here in this context, the hope of glory, this hope is certain because it is based on Jesus the one who has defeated sin and death, who will one day reign completely over every square inch of creation, who will eliminate suffering, who will transform his people to be like his glorious body, who will give us his inheritance, the inheritance that we don't deserve. And yet, he will give it to us of everlasting life with him together. He is the one in whom we hope, and that hope is certain. Therefore, we can joyfully and confidently look forward to the fulfillment of this promise, knowing that we will one day see Jesus face to face, having been fully conformed to his his image. And we will know in person that Christ is the center of the mystery of God and that he was indeed our sure hope and salvation. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word that has been passed down from generation to generation. Thank you that you didn't just reveal yourself to your, the people of old, to Israel, but that you have included all of mankind, that your word, the gospel, the good news of Jesus goes out even to the Gentiles, even to me. And God, thank you for this, for your servant Paul who writes these beautiful words to clarify over and over again to draw us back that Jesus is the center of this mystery and that we benefit from all of these years of history and understanding and seeing what you are doing and what you have done in the person of Jesus. I pray that somehow you would take this scripture and any of the words that I've said and turn our hearts back to you 
that if we've been chasing or pursuing other things, if, if there are nagging doubts within us that says, maybe I need to do more of this and that would make me more righteous or bring me closer to God, that you would wash all of that away and that you would replace it at the very center again with the beautiful picture of the preeminent Christ who rules and reigns over all creation and who has surely secured our faith and whose spirit has been sent into our bodies and into this church in order to make yourself fully known. God, help us to trust it, to believe it, to lean on it as sufficient. I pray that you would then help us to move as we learn more about it, that we would be totally engrossed with who you are and what you have done in the person and work of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.